0: Shalom, and uh, welcome to this week's lecture, Pashas Vayera, in the year 2019, Jewish year 5,780. And before I get started, I want to just place in the comments right now, for those of you who like to read, you can print up the lecture and read it later on again. So um, here, let me just post it right now. Um, There we go and it's done okay so now you can print it up you can actually follow along or later on you can read it as as you wish so um this week's torah portion is vayera but we're going to talk about primarily we'll also connect it to the torah portion but we're going to be speaking primarily about the half torah and i'm jumping ahead of myself so the name the title of this lecture is when our fire dies And the subtitle is Rebuilding Our Fire Within. So let's talk about the practical issue, because that's our job here. Our job is to get mystical only for the sake of getting practical. Any mysticism that doesn't lead to pragmatic change in life behavior isn't really what mysticism is all about. So um, let's just talk about it on the very practical level. You know, concerning emotional experiences... Um, very often we say, "Hasman ose echelo." Time does its thing. That's that's what happens. Now, emotions. Why is that? Because emotions are like fire that needs to be consistently renewed, or time will do its thing to our emotions, which primarily means that slowly but surely will weaken our emotions, take the commitment out of our emotions, until we get to the emotion gets to utter extinction. Now, what's important to know is this is not a bad thing. This all depends about which emotions we're talking about. For example, if we're talking about some negative emotions, well, that's beautiful. Let's take an example of anxiety. Um, if we don't feed it, you know, the saying that you hear most often from the therapist about any such emotions are, uh, every emotion has two wolves, the uh, white wolf and the dark wolf, the black wolf. And it's all going to depend on which one you feed. The one you feed gets stronger. The one that you don't feed gets weaker. So same thing with emotions. You can decide whether you want to strengthen them or weaken them. Emotions are not hardwired. They're softwired and we can change them, we can give birth to new ones, we can weaken them, we can grow them, we can evolve them, we can devolve them. It all depends on whether we continue to fuel the emotion or not. So that's why we say that hazman osechelo. time does its thing, because if we don't feed it and we don't take care of it, time will weaken it. Now, this is concerning the emotions we have with ourselves, the emotions we have in our relationships, and it also is concerning the emotions we have with God. Now, the question that we're going to talk about today is, what happens when we become sidetracked, We become preoccupied? You know, life life is busy. Life has a lot of demands, practical demands, you know, maybe the ones that we would rather not be dealing with, but we have no choice but to deal with them. And because of that, We sometimes can forget about our relationships, or we don't invest in our relationships, or we take our relationships for granted. And thus, time will do its thing to our emotions and commitment in our relationships. And therefore, when we talk about the fuel to the fire, we talk about our fire dies, we talk about rebuilding our fire within, what happens if it came to a point where our fire died? Um, We don't know what happened. One day we just wake up and all our emotions that were so passionate aren't there anymore. And we wonder, um, is it past the point of no return? Or can we rekindle and then rebuild? That's what we're going to talk about in this lecture. Now, as you know, my lectures are based on the teachings of the Rebbe, blessed memory. This is based on a mimer, a mystical teaching of the Rebbe that the Rebbe delivered on the Shabbat in 1965, exploring the mystical and our personal and practical dimensions of the story of Elisha the prophet. Elisha was the student of Elijah the prophet, by the way. Um, he was helping the wife of another prophet whose husband had died, and she and her children were left poverty stricken. We're going to soon talk about that story in. Just a moment. However, I want to give a general introduction, which the Rebbe actually quotes uh, of a teaching in this specific teaching. Stories. Why does the Torah tell us stories? The Torah is primarily a book of law, a constitution, a guidance. The very word Torah comes from the word hora'ah, which means a lesson. So why is it telling us stories? And thus... We know, especially in the, the written Torah, and I don't just mean the written Torah is not just the five books of Moses, it's the 24 books that make up the Pentateuch, the prophets and the scriptures. Every story that's in there, Torah is eternal. And if Torah is eternal, then a story in the Torah needs to be an eternal lesson, not one of history but one of talking to me in the here and the now, talking to you in the here and the now, giving you guidance today. Every detail of that story is eternal. So thus we have to find every detail and character of the story within ourselves. There's the Alicia within ourselves. There's the widow within ourselves. There's her two sons within ourselves. There's the poverty stricken. There's the miracle. All of that exists within And thus, we also need to know that the Torah speaks not just of the practical story as it is told, but there's also the mystical dimension. And thus, there's an interesting teaching from our sages that says as follows, and I quote it to you. It's from the Shaloh HaKadosh. He writes as follows, the Torah speaks in essence primarily of the upper supernal realms and only secondary of the lower physical realm. Thus, every time we read a story in the Torah, we're not just talking about the physicality of the story. But everything in the physical world is a reflection of the spiritual world. When we take it into the spiritual world, then we're not talking about the Alisha that lived thousands of years ago. We're talking about you and I that are living here today. Now, that is what we need to do. So, A, we need to find out the esoteric, mystical meanings behind this story. And specifically through this, we will find out what this story means to us in the modern day, the today, here and now. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about Haftorah. I wanted to tell you a little bit what Haftorah is. So as you know, on Shabbat, we take out, it's one of the three times a week that we take out the Torah and we read a Torah portion. Now, after the Torah portion is read, we reread the last verses called Maftir, leaving, ending, and the person who gets called up for Maftir then reads a portion from the prophets or the scriptures, and he reads what's called a half Torah. What is the history of the half Torah? Because Moses and Ezra describe in different generations what they what they established is the reading of the Torah. So where did the five books of Moses? So where did the half Torah come along. So a little bit of history, you know, we're not that far from Hanukkah. This story actually, the origin of Torah actually has to do with the infamous King Ahashverosh of Hanukkah. In the year 168 BCE, this Ahashverosh IV, he actually decreed that it be pro- prohibited, forbidden by penalty of death for the Jewish people to study the five books of Moses. And therefore, what they would do is, instead of reading a story from the five books of Moses, they actually would look for a story in the prophets that had a connection to the story that was in the five books of Moses that you would have read that week. Um, That's why, through reading the Haftorah, they would remember what the Torah portion would have been about. Um, there's an exception to that rule, and the exception to the rule is if that Shabbat is the day before Rosh Chodesh or Rosh Chodesh or something like that, then we would veer away from the weekly Torah portion, Torah and we would go to the holiday, whatever it may be, on Hanukkah, whatever day it may be, that we're reading a special Torah for the day rather than the Torah daily reading of that day. Now, let's talk about the story of the Torah of our Torah portion. So this Torah portion talks about the last two miracles of the 16 miracles performed by Elisha the prophet. What is the story with Elisha the prophet? So there's two stories, and I'll read them to you. I'm not going to read the story to you. I'm going to read to you the brief notes. So the first miracle involved a widow who was heavily in debt, and her creditors were threatening to take her two sons as slaves to satisfy the debt. She had two sons. When the prophet asked her what she had in her home, the the widow responded that she had nothing but a vial of oil. Alicia told her to gather as many empty containers as possible, even borrowing from neighbors and friends as well. The commentaries tell us that she even took broken um, uh, vessels and she should pour oil from her vial into the empty containers. So it's one little vial and a miracle is happening. That sheik, the oil does not run out. It keeps on filling one vessel after another vessel after another vessel, and then the woman sold the oil for a handsome profit and had enough money to repay her debts and live comfortably. Story number one: a miracle by Alicia Prophet. And then the book rolls. It's in the Book of Kings. Rolls straight into the second miracle. The second miracle is that Alicia would often pass by the city of Shunam where he would dine and rest at the home of a certain hospitable couple. The couple even made a special addition to their home, a guest room designated specifically for Elisha the Holy Prophet to use. When the Prophet learned that the couple was childless, he blessed the woman that she should give birth to a child in exactly one year's time. And indeed, one year later, a son was born to the aged couple. Now, a few years later, the son complained of a headache, went to lay down and died shortly thereafter. The Shunamit woman laid the lifeless body on the bed in Elisha's designated room and quickly summoned the prophet. Alicia hurried to the woman's home and miraculously brought the boy back to life. That is what this week's Torah Torah is made up of, these two stories. Now, the connection between the second story and the Torah portion makes very much sense. We're talking about a woman who was childless. What is our Torah portion talking about? Sarah who was childless, who was given a blessing and a miracle by God and she gives birth to her son Isaac. So the connection is there. Miracle of a childless woman having a child, the Torah portion, Sarah is childless, God promises her and Abraham a, a child and she gives birth to a son Isaac. The question is, what is the first story? Why do we read the first miracle, the story about the oil and the poverty stricken? What is that about? Where is there a connection between that and our Torah portion? So that's the first we need to understand. And we also need to understand what is the eternal message of that story. We're going to focus on the first story. Okay, and let's, uh, let's, let's start the lecture now. That was the introduction. So as you know, I always start with giving you a list of the mystical concepts we're going to talk about before we bring it all back to the practical, answer all the questions. So here is the list. It's just three topics we're going to talk about on a mystical level before we bring it back home. Number one, rereading the story. I'm going to reread to you that story, but on a mystical level, which makes it very personal. Then we're going to talk about the empty vessels. Remember that Alicia told the woman, the widow, to go ahead and get empty vessels, bring all her empty vessels, get from her neighbor's empty vessels, and they would miraculously fill with the oil that she should be able to sell. What are the empty vessels? Our empty vessels. And then the last thing I want to talk to you about is the mysticism of the sick. Everything that exists physically exists spiritually. Thus, if there's a physically concept of a person who is a sick person, thus we need to know that spiritually there's the notion of a soul being sick. What does that mean, the soul is sick? And now, let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So let's reread the story. I'm actually going to read to you the verses. I'm going to quote phrases of the verses of the first story and explain their mystical meaning. As a general introduction, before I start working on the actual phrases and show you what they mean on a mystical level, share with you that I want to just tell you that the general first story of the widow of the prophet, the student of Elisha, crying to Elisha that her husband died and that she's poor and that her children are about to be taken slaves by her creditor, really is talking about how our soul every single night when we go to sleep and it ascends to heaven how the soul cries out before god the widow cries out before elisha the soul cries out before god about her distance and separation that she experiences from god when she's here in this physical world in the physical body so now let me read to you the first verse that we're going to dissect phrase by phrase And one woman of the wives of the disciples of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, has died. You know that your servant did fear the Lord, and the creditors has come to take my two children for himself as slaves. Okay, let's talk about this now, phrase by phrase. Let's start with the word one and one woman. What does the word one mean? The one refers to the soul, which is one with God. What is the woman referred to? The woman refers to the soul, as the verse states, we sing it in our Friday Night Woman of Valor, Isha Yirat Hashem, a God-fearing woman. This refers to the soul. So the soul is God-fearing, and it's one with God. So the woman who's crying out to Elisha is actually our soul. Now, of the wives of the disciples of the prophets, what is the definition of prophecy? The definition of prophecy simply means to be open to receive and hear the Word of God. Thus the soul truly is, in the sense, a prophet because the soul is our godly soul within us is always open to hear the Word of God, to perceive God, and to live, and to live in the revelation of God. Thus this woman, the soul within us, with the verses identifying the soul, Number one, she's God-fearing. Number two, she's united. She's one with God. Number three, she is a prophet, which means that she is open to perceive, to receive, the revelation of God. Cried out to Elisha. Now, what does it mean? Cried out to Elisha. Who is Elisha, metaphorically speaking? So Elisha actually is made up of two words, Elisha. Kaylee means my God. Sha, shin-ayin in Hebrew, means to turn to. As the verse says that God turned to able sacrifice, it uses the word sha'a. It turned. Now what that means is that the soul is crying out to Kaylee, my God. The word is not Kaylee, It's not K, it's eh. But I just don't want to say God's name in vain. So Kaylee. The soul is crying out, my God, Sha, turn to me, help me. Why help me? What what does the soul need help from God with? Your servant, my husband, has died. Now the Hebrew word for my husband is ishi. Ishi is made up of two words in Kabbalah. We divide into two words, esh, yud, the fire of the letter yud. What this refers to is the blazing of flame love of the soul for God to become one with the Yud of God. What does the Yud of God represent? The emanation of wisdom, the supernal wisdom, which is the absolute transparent home of the essence of the infinite light. Thus she cries out, Ishi, the fire within my soul, the fire that always wants to connect completely with God, the blazing love has died. And thus, she's crying out. And you know that your servant did fear the Lord. What does that mean, your servant did fear the Lord? So again, the soul is talking about itself. And the soul is saying, I did fear the Lord. Now here is another Kabbalistic twist on the Hebrew word. The word for fear that she uses here is Yore. Now, the word Yore is made up of Yud, resh, Aleph. Switch the resh and the Aleph, and you have the word Ya'er. Ya'er means to illuminate. The soul is crying out to God that originally not only did I have the capacity to become one and receive the revelation of the ineffable tetragrammaton of God, God's name. But I even had more power than that. I, was, I had the capacity to actually bring the essence of God, to illuminate into the name of God. Thus, I wasn't just a receiver. I was even a participant in the illumination, the revelation of the essence of God. That's what the soul is saying. And therefore, now he's saying that I don't have this anymore. My fire has died, even though that this is the soul, the woman of valor, the woman of fearing God. And this is the Ishi, the fire of the Yud, the love, the passionate love, not only the recipient, but even a participant in the illumination of God, your heir to illuminate. Nevertheless, she cries out, all this has died. I am left in utter darkness, distance, and hidden from my connection to God. Why? So let's go on with the verse. And the creditor. The word the verse uses for creditor is Noshe. Now the word Noshe in Hebrew also is used from the word Nishani. Joseph named his first son Menashe and he says, why? kinishani? God made me forget. Over there, Joseph is talking about forgetting his suffering. But we're talking here that why is it called, why is the creditor called nashah? Because the creditor that we're talking about is that which makes the soul forget. We are talking about the egocentric, the egocentric, self-centered paradigm of the animalistic soul within us. The one that's me, 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 me. It's all about me. It's all about my grandeur. It's all about my existence. And thus, this arrogance of the animalistic soul, clothed on top of the godly soul, is a creditor from the word nishani. It makes the godly soul forget who she is and the revelation, the unity that she lived with with God. And not only that, but has come to take my two children. Who are the children of our godly soul? Who are the primary two sons of the godly soul? And the answer is, our emotions of love and fear slash awe. Our love to God is the son of our godly soul. The fear of God, the awe of God, the humility towards God, that is the son of the soul. Thus, this creditor, is taking these two sons of the godly soul as slaves to their own soul, to his own liking. What does that mean? What that means is that the godly soul, it experiences a love for the selflessness and oneness with God. The fear of the soul is from the infinite power and greatness of God. It stands at total humility as a speck, a spark, in the face of the infinite, vast essence of God, this is the normal emotions, i.e., sons of the godly soul. However, now comes along the the narcissistic, animalistic soul, where everything is about me. Everything's about my, my, and what does that do? It wants the love to now be committed to anything that will bring greatness to my pleasure. Of self it wants to have a fear should only be of God forbid having my pleasure diminished I want to tell you a story in 1978 the Rebbe blessed memory suffered a very big heart attack a very severe heart attack later on about a year later in the summer right before the high holidays the doctor Dr. Weiss was the Rebbe's cardiologist And he asked the the Rebbe's wife, is your husband afraid of physical pain? And she looked at the doctor and she said, my husband is not afraid of physical pain, but my husband is extremely afraid of the upcoming high holidays. Here you see the difference between the animalistic soul's narcissistic fear and the godly soul's selfless fear. The high holidays are called day of awe, day of revelation, day of judgment. That's the fear of the godly soul, to stand before the Almighty. But the fear of physical pain, of physical discomfort, of physical displeasure, of physical diminishment, that's the animalistic soul's fear. And the same thing works with the love. Thus, the soul is crying out to Alicia: God, turn to me, help me. Not only is, am I being forgotten by the animalistic soul's dominance, but my, my son's, the powerful emotions of love and fear and awe is being taken as slaves, becoming subservient to the animalistic soul's definition of love and fear. For himself as slaves, that's what the animalistic soul is doing. So now we understand The opening verse of the story. We now understand it metaphorically, mystically, esoterically, that we're not just talking about a woman that lived in the times of Elisha, the the student of Elijah the prophet. We're talking about me. We're talking about you. We're talking about our soul crying out as a widow, crying out as, as one who was forgotten, crying out that her sons have been taken slaves. And now let's see what Alicia answers. Again, I'm going to read to you the verse, and then I'm going to go into phrase by phrase. And Alicia said to her, and goes on to say, Tell me what you have in the house. And she said, Your maidservant has nothing at all in the house except a jug of oil. And he said, Borrow vessels for yourself from outside, from all your neighbors. Do not borrow only a few empty vessels and you and your sons will live with the remainder. Now the word the remainder can also be read as in abundance. Now let's take this phrase by phrase and make it practical by first making it esoteric. Has nothing at all in the house except the jug of oil. The jug of oil, the one jug of oil, refers to the core essence of the godly soul. We refer to that in Yiddish, as the pintalayid. I've heard it said in Spanish as chispa de judio. We're talking about that one core essence which never gets diminished or extinguished, God forbid. The pintulayid, she's saying, All I have left to me is my core essence. All my faculties have been darkened, all my garments have been taken slaves. All I have left is my pintalayid deep, deep within me, still beats the heartbeat of a Jew. But that's all I have. I don't feel it consciously. I just know subconsciously it's there. So what does Alicia say? Alicia says, go borrow empty vessels. Okay, what is empty vessels? To understand what empty vessels refer to, we're first going to have to understand a mystical teaching of the Zohar. The Zohar in Volume 3 says, Rav said in the heavenly yeshiva, Rav's soul, when it ascended into the heavenly yeshiva, the Torah study hall, he said as follows, and I'm going to quote, a log that will not catch on from the fire, splinter it. The log is too thick, got to break it into little pieces so the fire can begin to catch on and consume it. So too, the ego of the body that will not allow the light of the soul to catch on to it, Splinter it. It is the splintered ego of the body, of the animalistic soul, that Alicia is referring to as the empty vessels. For vessels that are filled with ego cannot receive. You can't pour anything into a filled cup. You have to first empty the vessel and then you can pour into it. And thus, how does one splinter? How does one splinter break down? The narcissist, the narcissist self centered ego, and that is by focusing on the emptiness that we have from our spirituality and how far we are from God, the bitterness of feeling empty, spiritually empty, that very bitterness will create humility, and this humility will splinter the ego. Thus, he's saying, Go out there and get empty get empty all this all the ego all the narcissism has to be broken in order to be able to have it become a conduit a transparency to the godly soul so that the godly soul can be the one that dominates our emotions our paradigm our thoughts our speech and our action and for that to happen we're going to have to crack and splinter that heavy log of ego of it's all about me. I am the center of the universe, and everything I do has to be to my benefit. And then, once we can have the empty vessels, then Alisha says, and you and your sons, meaning the essence of the soul, and the love and fear of God of the soul, will live in abundance. Now, what does that mean, mystically speaking? Will live in abundance. What abundance? So here I want to quote what King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I saw that wisdom has an advantage over folly as the advantage of light over darkness. This advantage, we're talking about abundance. Now, Hasidus explains that King Solomon is not just talking about that light has an advantage over darkness. Uh, Aduh, Wisdom has an advantage over folly, of course. Rather, Hasidus says, read deeper. King Solomon is saying that the light that comes from transformed darkness, if we can take darkness and transform it into light, the light that comes from darkness has an infinite advantage over normal light itself. So there's light and there's darkness. Light is greater than darkness. But then you start working on splintering, refining, and transforming the darkness itself into light. Now you'll end up with a light that is greater than any original light. Thus, what is Alicia telling the soul whose light, love, and fear of God has been diminished into darkness by the animalistic soul within us and the egocentrism, the self-centeredness of it all, that Alicia is telling the soul, oh, don't worry. Not only isn't it all lost and you can rekindle it, simply by focusing on the humility to find humility in the ego, crack the ego, focus on how distant we are from spirituality when we're so self-centered. And that bitterness, that realization itself will cause a bitterness that will splinter the ego. And suddenly the whole who, how of who I am, we start realizing, mm. And then when you splinter that darkness and transform it into light, not only will the soul have back its original light, but the soul will experience unprecedented heights of light. Because now the soul has not only its own light, which was always light, it even has the light that's been transformed from darkness of which King Solomon says, I see the advantage of light that comes from darkness over light itself. Now we can understand very simply how this story of the Torah is an eternal story with a timeless lesson which are as pertinent to us today as they were throughout all of history of mankind, speaking to us about our soul struggles and our relationship with God. Suddenly, when we read the story, we're not reading of an ancient widow talking to the prophet, having a miracle done. We're talking about how we, six days a week, exhausted from trying to make a living, exhausted from the rat race. Shabbos, we take our siesta because we're so exhausted. And if we're not sleeping on Shabbat, we're we're struggling with, what am I thinking about? Am I thinking about all the meetings I had last week? What am I going to do next week? What am I going to answer this guy? How am I going to turn this into a gold mine? How am I going to cover my bills? Our spirituality has turned into darkness. Our life has become self-centered, not in an evil way, in a survival way, but self-centered nonetheless and thus the story is that the soul cries out to god what has become of me is that what i have become now i'm stuck in a body who needs to eat who needs to have a roof over its head clothing it has bills kids tuitions and that's what i'm stuck doing all day earning money what happened to me where's my praying where's my torah study Where's my spirituality? Where's my self-centeredness? Where's my love for God? Where's my fear for God? Where's my basking in the aura of God? Where's my relationship with God? And Alicia says, don't worry. Because from your darkness that you're now experiencing shall come forth an even greater light. And the way we're going to do this is, first we're going to go ahead and grab the bull by the horns. We're going to take the very darkness of the ego and we're going to work with it. We're going to splinter it. We're going to start thinking about reality. We're going to start thinking about what we started fighting for. To be really spiritual human beings living in light and realizing how empty we have become and then using this feeling of bitterness to splinter so I'm not such a big macher. So I'm not the smartest person I thought I was. I'm not the most beautiful person that I thought it was. And I'm not the most uh, intellectual and then powerful and wealthy. What is it all? Nothing's coming with me in the grave. The true definition of life is my relationship with God. What happened to that? And that wake-up call, that station identification... Will create a bitterness that will be able to create a humility and splinter that thick log of ego. And by doing that, not only will the soul return to its capital and from there dominate and shine upon us in the way we think, in the way we feel, in the way we speak, in the way we act, but it will receive unprecedented light that came from the darkness. By the way, Just to be practical for a moment, not in my notes. What does it mean, the light that comes from darkness? I just want you to know that a spouse who is tempted with betrayal and overcomes the betrayal and remains committed will come home and experience an unprecedented love for their spouse because they had to dig deeper into their commitment in order to overcome temptation. Thus, the light that comes from darkness is greater than the original light itself. Let's move along now. What does it mean, our empty vessels? I want to give another interpretation that I saw in another teaching of the Rebbe about empty vessels. So in Kabbalah, the word empty vessels actually means that there is no feelings and there's no intention. So vessels are action. Words of prayer that have no feelings. Words of Torah study, actions of good deeds that have no feelings or intentions. They are called empty vessels. Now, what is Alicia telling the soul? What is God telling the soul to do when she's experiencing darkness? No feelings spirituality has been diminished to almost extinction. What we're hearing here is, go bring empty vessels. You know what that means? That means when we have no feelings, use obedience. Sometimes we have to do what we have to do without any feelings, without any spirituality. Sometimes it's not the feelings that bring the actions, but the actions that bring the feelings. Thus we're being taught, if you don't feel it, do it. Bring empty vessels. And then Alicia says, when you bring me empty vessels, we'll fill those vessels with oil. We'll fill those vessels with light. And thus the deep message here is that we need to know. It's not about, "Mm, I don't feel like praying right now. I don't feel like praying has nothing to do with whether I should be praying or not. It has to do with the level of the illumination of my spirituality, whether I'm in connection with my spirituality or not. And when I'm not in connection with my spirituality, what more important time is there to do something about that? So if I'm not in the mood, the answer is not I'm not going to do. The answer is I'm going to do with obedience. And the very doing with obedience, the empty vessels, is what draws and fills itself slowly but surely. With feelings and intention and light. Let's go to the next topic. What does it mean, sick? So, why am I talking to you about sick? Because I told you that the Torah story, the Torah portion of this week talks about how Sarah the childless was granted a child, Isaac. But that's not how the Torah story begins. The Torah story begins with. The fact that last week, at the end of the Torah portion, Abraham, at the age of 99, circumcised himself. Now, this Torah portion begins three days later. The third day after the circumcision, Abraham was sick with pain. He had a surgery. He performed the surgery on himself. And thus, the Torah tells us that God came to visit him, fulfilling the mitzvah, the commandment of Bikur Cholim, visiting the sick. And in this visit, God heals him. So now, let's talk about the story on even a different dimension. The story of sick. The word for sick in Hebrew is the word chole. Chole is made out of four letters. Chet, Vav, lamid, He. Now, in Hebrew letters, each number has an numerical value. Chet is eight. Vav is 6, is 14. Lamid is 30, is 44. Hey, 5, is 49. So the word Khole, which means sick, is the numerical value of 49. What does this mean? So Kabbalah goes on and tells us, we know that there are 50 gateways of understanding. It is through these mystical, supernal 50 gateways of understanding that we perceive God, connect with God, and are illuminated by the divinity of God. However, the first 49 gateways, we can achieve through self-refinement, prayer, Torah study, and mitzvot, good deeds. However, the 50th gateway, in which is housed Atiko Kadisha, the essence of the supernal Crown, The 50th gateway man cannot achieve from his own work. It needs to be given to him as a gift from God. Thus, you will remember when the Jewish people came out of Egypt for the next 49 days, they were preparing themselves, ridding themselves from gateway of gateway of impurity, going into gateway of gateway of understanding of divinity. And then what happens on the 50th day? The 50th day is when God descends upon Mount Sinai and gives them the 50th gateway, the essence, the Torah. Now we'll understand what the mystical concept of a soul being sick is. A soul who only experiences the 49 gateways. This is not only. I mean, this is huge. 49 gateways of understanding. But because... The soul does not have the essence understanding. Only the revelation understanding. Only the lower 49 gateways. Thus the soul feels sick. Thus God tells Abraham, before he circumcises himself, V'heyet you will be complete through this mitzvah of circumcision. Because when you remove your physical foreskin, and I will move the spiritual foreskin of your heart, Then what will happen is I will be able to visit you and give you the 50th gateway. Thus Abraham on the third day after the circumcision was sick. He only had still 49 gateways. Came along God and said, now is the time to heal you, i.e. give you the 50th gateway of understanding. And thus you will be complete. In your unity and oneness and subserviency and commitment and transparency to God. Now, ooh, we're talking about huge stuff here. Fifty gateway, fiftieth gateway of understanding. Just that you understand what we're talking about. Moses achieved it on the last day of his life. He was buried in Har Nevo. Nevo mystically stands for Nun Bina, the fiftieth gateway of understanding. So we're talking about a gateway which is way beyond our reach. But nevertheless, Abraham is one of our three patriarchs. And according to Jewish law, the patriarch, the father, inherits to his son everything he has received. Thus, ultimately speaking, even though we on our own can never achieve any inkling of a 50th gateway, but the fact that we are the offspring of Abraham means that we inherited it and at some moment, we can't have a glimpse of an experience of what it means to be truly one with God. Now we understand the connection between the first story of the Torah and the Torah portion. What is the Torah, the Torah telling us? Alicia tells the woman, take that one jar of oil, the core essence, the pinteleyeh, the chispa de judio. take that 50th gateway that lies buried within you and pour it into all your empty vessels. Pour it into all your thoughts, all your speech, all your action, all your feelings. Thus the connection of the first story of the Haftorah is the connection of God visiting Abraham and healing him to be complete, no more sick, giving him the 50th gateway, the true essence connection between the soul and God, and that he should experience it in all his thought, speech, and action. His feelings and his paradigms of reality now becomes ultimately ultimately selfless, and he now sees through the bird's eye view, not the worm's eye view. He sees through the eyes of Creator and not through the eyes of creation. It's not about me. That is the story of Alicia telling the woman, take your oil and pour it into all your empty vessels. The second story of the Haftorah is again about the barren woman having a child. Now we understand what the what the relationship between the first story of Torah in our Torah portion, and even more importantly, we understand how it's talking to you and me in our struggles as we feel that our spirituality is leaving us, it's diminishing. I become a self-centered survival rat in a rat race. What do I do about that? That's what this Torah Torah tells us. Go ahead and splinter the arrogance go ahead and bring empty vessels of obedience even when you don't feel like it and then it'll be filled with oil with spirituality in closing in closing i would like to share a couple of practical lessons for relationship with god spouse children friends etc that we learn from this first story of the haftorah a relationships are living entities And we are living entities that aren't flatlined. There are ups and downs. It's important to remember that relationships are moment by moment evolving and devolving. Whatever the experience of the relationship in the moment is, isn't terminal nor permanent. Every and any moment of a relationship can become whatever we choose to make of it. Through the fuel and work we are willing to introduce in the moment. There is no, I've got a great relationship. No, I have a great relationship in the moment, and if I don't fuel it, then the next moment, it may not be that great. Oh, this moment, oh, this relationship is over. No, it's not. This moment is dark. What are you going to do with it? Number two, even when our relationship seems to have completely died, know that there always exists this one jug of oil through which we can reignite and rebuild our relationships if we choose to. Number three, if and when we don't have any vessels left within us to rebuild our relationship, we can borrow vessels from yourself, from outside, from all your neighbors. Do not borrow only a few empty vessels. What this means is to act as if, borrow vessels. And with this acting to do actions of rebuilding a relationship. I don't feel like doing this for her. I don't feel like doing this for him. Why should I? She was nasty to me. Why should I? He was cold to me. Act as if. Borrow vessels. Number four, it's okay in a relationship to do empty vessels, which means to obediently, obediently do what needs to be done in a relationship even when we don't feel it. Don't hide behind hypocrisy. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not going to do it if I don't feel it. Or that the obedient action is meaningless. What does it mean to me? He did it, but he didn't feel it. I saw it in his eyes. He just did it because he had to do it. No, no, no. Working our relationship is not hypocrisy or meaningless. And when we do things obediently, we're not eating the fruits from our relationship. We're working on our relationship. And that's beautiful and should be greatly appreciated by ourselves and by the other. And then finally, E. Know that the outcome of rebuilding light from darkness in our relationship brings to even greater light and love in our relationships. One may say, listen, my relationship has been damaged. Well, I'm not going to break the relationship, but listen, it'll never be what it used to be. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. It'll be greater than it ever was if we're willing to take the work and turn the very, very apathy, turn the very, very darkness into a source of working it, working it, working it, obedient vessels, working it, splintering my ego, splintering my hurt ego, and turning it into a greater light of love than we've ever had. Shalom.